I've listened to The Nice by The Nice for six months. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. and welcome back to Spin It, the record-ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music. I'm James, and with me once again is Connor. He's returned. I'm back. He's returned from his adventures at ConCon? Were you at Connor Convention? I was at the Connor Convention, held annually. Yeah, what kind of stuff did you do? Oh, you know, there was all sorts of panels about how to be a better Connor. <laughs> it sounds inspiring. Yeah, and uh, there, was a, there was the uh, cannoli bake-off. You bake cannolis? Con- <laughs> cannolis? Cannolis, exactly. Everybody brought their own cannoli recipe, judged. Incredible. I won. <laughs> <laughs> you you won the cannoli making contest at Connor Competition? Uh, not competition, convention. Connor Convention. Right, right. Well, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. The mixtaper was here last week. We we got to do a little mixtober special. I'm sure you heard it. Yes. He wouldn't shut up about it. Yeah. I believe that. Well, because the mixtaper was here last week and he kind of took over, we had to push last week's album up to this week. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, he kind of invaded. We were meant to do this album, the Nice album, by the Nice. This was supposed to be last week's, and we had to rearrange our plans when that dastard barged in. Mm. So that said, we're diving back into prog rock this week. The Nice, if you haven't heard of them, if you're not familiar, they're kind of the granddads of prog rock, actually. They were around before the genre even had a name get off my prog lawn you rascally kids rascally kids (laughs) that's what you got you you troublemakers for the prog granddads the prog granddads protecting their prog lawn i like it i like it what you might not realize is this album and this band is actually a subtle part of the spin cycle they have some ties to other bands and albums that we've talked about that we'll have to surprise you with it's like in the washing machine next to yours but so it's bumping it's kind of contributing to the motion of your machine that is i guess yeah sure why not (laughs) so let's talk about the nice It's a band most of you probably haven't heard of. So if this is your first introduction to The Nice, welcome. If it's not, cool. You probably know a lot about what I'm about to say, but buckle up. The Nice were formed in 1967 in London, England, and they actually had a fairly short lifespan as a group. They broke up pretty permanently in 1970, and then in 2002, they did reunite for a tiny little stint, a couple reunion concerts. The band's origins lie with Gary Farr and the T-Bones, who were a 60s R&B band. That band made it through the late 60s, and two of those T-Bones, bassist Lee Jackson and Keith Emerson, decided to go their own way and put down the foundations for the nice. Is that one of the subtle tie-ins? N- no, not inherently. That, that that they can go their own way? Oh, the tie-in <laughs> to Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. No, but now that you mention it, yes. See, I can be witty. I can be witty. It was one of the panels at ConCon. How, How to, to be, be more witty. A wittier Connor? Yeah. They just had a panel for everything. <laughs> Coincidentally. Did they, did they have a panel on how to have panels? That was at last year's convention. Oh, so that's why there's panels everywhere this year. I see. It all makes <laughs> sense. Took that advice to heart. <laughs> Yikes. 
Really getting a lot of mileage out of this dumb joke. <laughs> yeah, we are. Well, ConCon Con only happens once a year. You gotta celebrate it. So, so Lee Jackson, Keith Emerson go their own way. Meanwhile, while that's happening, Patricia Cole, professionally known as P.P. Arnold, fired her old backing band and was in search of a new act to tour with and play with. Keith Emerson steps up and says, hey, I can put together a band, you know, as long as we get to be the opening act and your backing band, we're in. Which is, you know, that's not an unreasonable request to make, especially back in those days. You didn't necessarily tour with opening bands a ton, and think of all the money you'd save by just bringing your backup band on to open. It was a good plan. And uh, so her manager, the renowned Andrew Luke Oldham, was on board right away. If you recognize the name Andrew Luke Oldham, that's because he managed the Rolling Stones from 1963 to 67, and he basically is the person that's responsible for turning them into the hit machine that they are now. So this is like his warm-up. Well, no, this is like after that. <laughs> oh, this is after? Never mind. Yeah. After slash during. I wasn't paying attention to the timeline. Right. Either way, suffice it to say, he's a heck of a manager. He's got a track record. This was his downfall. This is his downfall. I wonder if they sold tickets. To, to Andrew Luke Oldham's downfall. Maybe. Ask Machine Gun <laughs> Kelly. So... Emerson and Jackson pick up Ian Haig to play the drums and David O'List to play the guitar, and they start playing together as the Nice. Ian Haig actually later got replaced by Brian Davison on the drums, but that's okay. Their name was taken from a misheard phrase. Someone was sarcastically talking about someone, and they said, here comes the Naz, which was slang for Jesus, and they took that and twisted it around into the Nice. Wait, what did they twist around? They twisted around the Naz into the nice. Just, you know, one of those cases of misheard dialogue. That's happened before. We've had people do that. They were like, we're a Naz, and other people were like, oh yeah, you are kind of nice. I mean, roughly. If that helps you remember it, yeah, basically. Andrew Lou Goldham was so impressed after their stint with Arnold that he signed them to their own contract. He said, I'll take you under my wing, and we'll do it. And just like that, they were in. They toured with all kinds of contemporaries like Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, King Crimson, Amen Corner, The Move, and more. So they were really getting out there, but things were kind of tense. They decided they needed some changes. Uh, O'List claims that he left the band voluntarily, and he was so hasty in leaving the band that he didn't even tell the others about his decision right away. He waited for them to get in touch with him, and they had to call him up and be like, hey, did you quit? And he was like, yes. Yes, I quit the band. Dang. I know, it's kind of wild. What a way to find out. That's how you're going to find out I quit the podcast. I'm going to have to reach out to you and say, hey, aren't we supposed to record right now? And you'll be like, I'm done. That'll be sad. Don't do that. But here is where we get a little tangential to the spin cycle. Oh. Uh-huh. In O'List's absence, Steve Howe of Yes auditioned to replace him on the guitar. Oh. Did he get it? Um, no. <laughs> they decided to stick to being a three-man band. Considering you said auditioned and not joined, I was like, I don't think he got it. <laughs> that is correct. He did not. So Steve Howe was out and went to Yes instead, and we've already seen the results of that. Great choice. But, I mean, imagine trying out to replace someone who left, and they just go, we might be better off with just three people, thanks. Like, ouch. Yeah. Actually, they were so determined to make it work that Emerson even tried to make the switch from keyboard to guitar on some songs to fill in the gaps, but he really wasn't able to pick up the slack for some of the solos and guitar work. And also, Emerson was really needed on the keyboard. And by the time 1969 rolled around, it was all just a little too much. Emerson said that the 
Ice had, quote, progressed as far as it could in a musical sense, so they jumped ship and headed towards individual solo projects. Those other projects, actually, some of them were quite successful. The Nice themselves didn't necessarily earn many awards, only being around for like three years. But members of the band, including Keith Emerson, were pretty successful in the aftermath. Emerson formed a band that you may have heard of by name, some of you prog rock fans out there, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or ELP, and he found massive success as a keyboardist and a composer for film soundtracks, orchestras, and more. And after his death in 2016, all music described him as perhaps the greatest, most technically accomplished keyboardist in rock history. Wow. I know. And that's pretty accurate. He actually hated the idea of playing the keyboard and being static, you know, just sitting at a piano or standing at a keyboard. So he invented all these new ways to get involved with playing. He was a real pioneer for that kind of energetic piano playing. He said he wanted to get around inside the piano, brush the strings, stick ping pong balls inside, kind of some of these weird playing techniques like we've talked about before, notably like the Beach Boys kind of tried to do. He would even like stand up and reach into the piano that he's playing during performances and use his hands to like accentuate the notes and make them hit differently. So that's kind of wild. If you take nothing else away from this episode, take away Keith Emerson and his piano playing because we are in for some great piano and keyboard feats in these next couple episodes. I think I will uh, choose to take nothing. Take nothing? Oh, you're going to Steve Howe him. <laughs> He's like, I said, take away the keyboards, and you go, yeah, we might be better off without. <laughs> but trust me, this, this is, I mean, depending on if you consider, like, the organ parts in Phantom, this is either the start or the continuation of a really good keyboard stretch for us. We'll say it's a continuation. Okay. So keep your ears out for more piano. This week, we are talking about kind of a self-titled album, also kind of not a self-titled album. The album is called The Nice Album in the UK, but the US release was called Everything As Nice As Mother Makes It. So that's interesting. The album came out in 1969, and it was the band's third and final album, although they did have a posthumous release called Elegy that made its way up to number five on the charts. And a lot of this album is very prog-infused reimaginings of classical pieces and covers of other works, kind of exactly like we saw on Yes, with some songs like Cans and Brahms, you know, just reimagining classical pieces. I believe you mean Cons and Brahms. Cons and Brahms, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But this album is kind of like that. The Nice Album also reimagines a lot of other works. In its heyday, it hit number three on the UK album chart, and that's pretty cool. As far as, like, composition goes, half this album is made of studio tracks. You know, the first four songs they cut in a studio, that's the A side of the record. You flip the record over, and side two features two live songs recorded from their touring. So that's very interesting. We get a little bit of live nice and a little bit of studio nice. And with that, I think it's time to get the mixtape run out here to see how nice he can be. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. Welcome back after your big week last week. I'm excited to play more Factor Spin against you. I had fun trying to fool you, but this feels more correct, like the way things should be. Indeed. I thought we just jump right into it. I say we do. Yeah, you give me a, a nice fact, and I'll tell you if it's a nice fact or a nice spin. <clears throat> I thought I'd go a little naughty. Oh, okay. Get all that out of your system now before Spinter Wonderland. <laughs> oh, right. In that case, we'll just stay nice. Okay, good plan. 
Patricia Cole once performed on a cow. On a cow? So Patricia Cole, the same Patricia Cole that they were the backing band for and opener for, she performed on a, on a cow? Yes. You milk lover, you. I should have known you'd do this someday. <laughs> I am a milk enthusiast. So why? Is this like on a stage or was she performing on a farm for a crowd without a stage and needed to be visible up above the heads of everybody? I mean, mm, mm. I'm, I'm thinking of scenarios in my head. Well, let me answer your question with a question. I don't like that. What is the UK's most famous animal disease? Well, you're probably going for mad cow disease. Yeah, they deal with that crap all the time over there. It seems like every couple of years. That is true. So is Patricia Cole on a mad cow? <laughs> no, but they were at a mad cow disease charity event. <laughs> Okay, so what's the gimmick? You go to this charity event to watch concerts and and to to raise awareness and funding for mad cow disease. They perform on cows. It was a I guess to raise awareness was probably part of it, but it was to help relief some of the cow farmers who had been hit hard by the most recent batch of mad cow disease. And so all the proceeds went to that. Oh, okay. So it's not for the cow, like not for research or for... No. Okay, no, it's no. for farmers and relief. Okay, okay, that's different. And they were the live entertainment. So she's sitting on the cow, like forward facing or like side saddle. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, just uh, on the cow. And how long was this performance? I actually don't, I just have the picture and a little article snip about it. I don't know if it was for the whole performance or just a song, but it, the cow's like still in its pen. Like they got a pen up on stage that the cow's sitting in. Yeah, you can't let it roam around. Yeah, and then she's on top of it with a microphone. Okay, this is really something. I'm going to say this cow fact is no bull. I'm calling this one a fact. That was clever. <laughs> thank, thank you. I'm not really sure it's clever that I called it a fact, but um, but we'll find out. <laughs> it was not. This is a spin. Oh, now I feel stupid. Has anyone performed on a cow? Or, or did you just really go all out for making that up? I just made that up on the spot. On the spot? <laughs> yeah. You sat here and you... Uh, wow. I hate that one. Those are the ones that get me the worst. You did it with Gabrielle Aplin's chip recipe, too. Because you were eating chips. You were like, this is this will be funny. Wow. I just... I'm off to a really bad start. Well, I realized I didn't have enough facts for this week. I got behind on my research. And so I was like, I need to make one up. Well, bravo. That one was really good. Somehow very believable, at least Interesting. in the moment. In hindsight, I'm going to re-listen <laughs> to this and go, you're just a fool. But... Well, I got another animal-related fact for you real fast. Okay. Just going to out of the way. You're going to milk it? No, this was not a cow. No milk. I guess it is a mammal, so it would have it would potentially have milk. Well, let's put a pin in that. Let's put a pin in whatever anyway. you're thinking right now and move on. <laughs> Gary Farr once played chess against a chimp. You've done an interesting thing this time where you took people who were like related to the band. Uh-huh. Gary Farr was the band leader for the original band of Jackson and Emerson. Yeah. And he played chess against a chimp. It was really hard to find interesting information about everybody. <laughs> I had to get creative. I can imagine. This is a bit of a deep cut episode. Chess against a chimp. So did he, first question and most important, did he win? 
Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Could you imagine losing to the chimp? No. Did the chimp actually follow the rules and, like, play? Did it finish the game, or did it, like, just smack some pieces around after a while? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it made some illegal moves that they had to, like, back jump and be like, no, chimp, that's illegal, but I don't know. The chimp could probably get away with cheating pretty, pretty well, because he could just be like, oh, sorry, I'm just a chimp. I don't know any better. <laughs> he could have could have made a lot of attempts. This is a pretty smart chimp, so I bet you they knew it knew better. Yeah, how do you train a chimp to play chess? Science. I don't know. Okay. Well, I mean, chess is a complicated game. All the pieces have different movements and, and they yep. can capture in different ways. It's not like even checkers. Like if you said he taught a chimp checkers, okay, that's one thing. Yeah. It just jumps. But chess, that's hard. Yeah, well, according to this, the chimp wasn't really that good. No, I can't imagine it would be. How long did the game last? The article doesn't say. Okay. <laughs> I don't, and from the picture, it doesn't look like they were doing the time stop method. I think they were just playing like casually. I see. Time stop. No. Duh, you're not going to teach a chimp to play chess and work a stop clock at the same time. Okay, so my next series of questions is, why Gary Farr? I mean, is he some kind of chess player? Is he known for that? Is He's a chess grandmaster. What? Yeah. Is he really? And he just plays music on the side? Uh, not too many chess grandmasters uh, do it for a living, actually. Okay, yeah, I can believe that. This has to be fake. There, I have trouble even wrapping my head around the fact that the chimp plays chess in any kind of recognizable way. Not to mention, I mean, okay, well, my next question, too, I guess, is they probably weren't just sitting across from each other at a chessboard, right? No, no, they were. They were? Oh. Yeah, in a lab. Okay. The chimp was hooked up to a bunch of sensors and stuff. What were they sensing for? Brain activity? Probably, like, brain activity. Probably, yeah. This has to be a spin. I can't... After the last one, I can't in good conscience say that this is a fact. <laughs> Lock it in, spin. Absolutely. There's no chimp chess here. This is... A spin. <laughs> I knew it was a far cry. All right. Okay, that's good. Chimp chess is out. I'll admit going with chess was a little bold over checkers. It was, but... It really was. Is Gary Farr actually a grandmaster in chess? No. I had no idea. Completely made up again. That part could have been true. Surely someone's played chess against the chimp though, right? Probably. Can we do that? Sounds like a thing that should exist. I can't imagine chimps have much motivation to learn chess. You're right. And that makes me wonder why we have any motivation to learn chess. <laughs> because we're bored. You don't think chimps get bored? <laughs> anyway. We've had some real doozies to kick this factor spin off. I am almost afraid of any rampage that's coming <laughs> next. <laughs> Hit me with nice fact three. Keith Emerson had a unique roadie. Was it a chimp? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, what's so unique about this roadie? It wasn't alive. So that can mean a couple things. Uh, it could mean the roadie was an inanimate object, or it could mean the roadie was dead. Sure could. A formerly animate object. So which is it? Um, is this is this like a statue or something? Uh, in a way. <laughs> you could call it a statue, I think. Okay, what is it? It's a taxidermied alligator head. Whoa! <laughs> a stuffed alligator head. That's a pretty unique roadie. How exactly does it fulfill any of the jobs that a roadie would do? <laughs> it rides around with him. <laughs> okay, so it's just like his tour buddy. Yeah. It doesn't, like, do anything. It doesn't, like, hold an instrument for him. Like, he puts his guitar uh, in there after every show. <laughs> 
I don't think it's that big. <laughs> but, uh... Well, you know, an alligator mouth. You, you could set a guitar sideways in it. Oh, uh, yeah, probably. Where did he get this? It was given to him by a fan. This is this has got Billy Joel koala energy. Oh, it does, I guess. Yeah, that was given to him by a fan. Why does he like alligators? What's this fan up to? Nope, they were at a after party at a local bar after one of their performances, and somebody in the bar said, do you want this? Do you want this? Oh. He was like, absolutely. That's paraphrasing, of course, but... Yeah. But yeah, it was at an after party at a bar. Very bizarre. Why does he take this with him everywhere? How long has he done that? I don't know how long he did it, but I, uh, why, why not take it with you? I mean, it's kind of unique. I mean, it is, but you've probably only got so much space on the tour bus. I guess I'll say that this one's a spin. Going with another spin. I'm going with another spin. I don't know why i mean maybe you could have a stuffed alligator head sure i don't know why you take it everywhere with you on tour and things but oh does it have a name it does what's its name i'm not telling you you're not telling me (laughs) nope what (laughs) you were so dismissive of the poor alligator i'm gonna wait till you lock in spin okay um yeah i'm gonna lock in spin this is a spin (laughs) (laughs) i was worried you were about to say fact for a split second and then tell me the alligator's name i wish it was a true fact uh it'd be cool though that would be a pretty unique roadie i have a i have an alligator head you you do Mm -hmm. why it was given to me as a gift by who in a bar (laughs) this i feel like is actually true i i just do i don't know if it's for sure true you've never talked about an alligator head before but for some reason i can yeah it sits on my little mixtape dresser next to my mixtape tv in the untrue right interesting bit of trivia there well i feel like i should point out you've told like 13 spins in a row wow really getting spinny over here yeah i guess you are 14 spins in a row actually will it be number 15 or will the streak break i'm thinking it's gonna be 15 in a row but you could really pull a fast one on me you could pull a fact one on me (laughs) a fact one on you that's funny well fire away lee jackson has a special pre-concert ritual a pre-concert ritual you say much like the pentatonics eating rotisserie chickens every night before they go (laughs) on stage (laughs) yeah what's jackson's ritual what's he got going on going on he drinks a can of root beer Ooh, that sounds good that's well that sounds good unless you're a singer in which case it sounds a little iffy you'd probably be burping and i mean root beer is pretty fizzy yeah so why did he start doing this to just like did it the first time and then it stuck i don't know what's the deal yeah he's just a big fan of root beer and he he, he found himself always craving one during a concert and so he just started making it his pre-concert ritual was to drink one while he was setting up and getting ready and yada yada and why not does he have a favorite brand is he an a and w guy is he a mug guy is he some other third thing some british root beer yeah uh his go-to is dandelion and burdock i have never heard of that is that a british one yeah as far as i believe it, it according to this it says it's actually closer to a sarsaparilla but you know sarsaparilla birch beer root beer they're all basically the same they pretty much are so how many i mean this is an answer you don't have how many root beers has he drank over the course of all these shows he's played at least one <sighs> Yeah, that is true. I think I don't like this. I don't like this at all because you could have made this up. I mean, literally sitting right here. You could be drinking root beer right now. I'm not. (laughs) I know, but you could be. But that's such a simple pre-concert ritual. It's like a final D-ramp. I think we we started... With the most, we we ramped <laughs> down this time. The final ramp was at the first when she rode the cow, and then Chimp Chess was a slight downgrade, and then Alligator Roadie was another slight downgrade, and now Root Beer. I think this one is a spin. 
going spin. I think I did 15 in a row. I think you're doing the same thing you accused me of doing last week. When I said that Andrew Lloyd Webber shared a Golden Globe with Jamie Foxx, your logic was, this is so simple, you probably think that I think, oh, he wouldn't waste a spin on something so mundane. And so you guessed spin. And I think you're doing just that, taking a dive. Okay. Hoping that I'll go fact because it is so unworthy of your classic spin caliber. <laughs> I don't think this is unworthy uh, based on what I've done in the past, but sure. Locking in spin once again, 15 in a row, if I'm right. Well, in the case of Lee Jackson versus Dandelion and Burdock Sarsaparilla, the jury finds it a spin. What on earth was that? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a spin. That means I went three and one this week. There was something special about all four of those facts that they had in common, or spins, I should say, that they had in common. Well, was there? Because you made one up on the spot. Uh-huh. So unless you made them all up on the spot. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> wow. That is really something. You make a pretty good on-the-fly fact. I mean, at least one of these tricked me. Yeah, and a couple of them got close. Well, you were scared. I was a little scared. I wonder how your brain thinks of these things. You just, <laughs> how you just sit here and go, I bet he played chess against a chimp. <laughs> Usually the first concept of something that comes to my mind, I snag, and then I take a different concept that comes to my mind, and I mush them together. Yeah, retrospectively, I can see it in your line of answering questions. You know, you started with the unique roadie. You didn't tell me what it was right away. You just kind of let me walk you to it. Yeah. <laughs> see what I ask questions about. You've done that in the past, too, where I've asked a question, and you've been like, you know what? I like your version better. Yes. <laughs> yep. I wasn't going to let that happen. Well, that was a fun round of factor spin. I really want some dandelion and burdock set. Now. That is a real thing. Yeah. Okay. I did do a quick Google. Uh, when you asked the question, I did do a quick Google of British root beers. Mm, smart. Well, Mixtaper, thank you so much for sticking here and playing this game with us. We've got a B-side episode coming up next week, so maybe we'll have an extra chance to get spun. Indeed. But only if you listen to the B-side. Yeah. So for now, I guess I should let you get back to the untrue and stare at your alligator head. See you next week. Yeah. And uh, welcome back, Connor. This is the first time we've had to get rid of the mixtape in an episode or two. Glad to have you back. Let's talk about the album cover for the nice album. What do you think of it? It exists. That's what you say when you don't like it. What I say when I forget to pull it up and put it in front of my face. Uh, it almost looks like it's a scrapbook, right? It's it's a red, almost looks like a bound book with a, a nice little, a pleasant script, nice up above, and some pictures of the band's members on the front of it, black and white photos. And uh, I think it's interesting. I think it's really cool. And probably it's made even more meaningful by the fact that this is the last album the band would put out. But it feels like, you know, as a self-titled, album and this kind of album cover adorning it it feels like a statement of hey this is who we are you know if you're looking for the nice this is how you'll find us this is what we're all about feels very personal yeah and i like that it's kind of a kind of a nice glimpse into them yeah i agree plus it's a pretty nice color red i'm a big fan of the red shade i am too yeah, it's a good shade. Well, this week, we might have a bit of a shorter episode on our hands. We've only got six tracks to talk about. Indeed. But I guess we'll dig into them. I did find some cool information on some of them, and I'm excited to talk about them. And actually, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this album, too. It's it's prog rock-like, yes, but honestly, it's a whole different brand of prog rock. This is like proto-prog. Yeah. The album starts off with a song called Azrael Revisited. 
Uh, now, I think it's important to mention that like some of these songs feel a little bit more like traditionally structured songs. You know, they actually sound like a radio single, right? Others, like Azrael Revisited, feel a lot more like those long-form kind of prog odysseys like we've seen a couple times in the past, a la Roundabout, right? Or South Side of the Sky, these Yes tracks, or some of these other songs that are really like long concept pieces. The Nice kind of does both of those in turn on this album, and... Um, and we start off with a 5 minute 54 second kind of prog odyssey of sorts. So the first context you'll need to understand this song is that Azrael is the name of the angel of death from a couple of different Abrahamic religions, right? I think Islam and Judaism in particular, some sects of it, they talk about Azrael as the angel of death. So this song is actually a really grim kind of foreshadowing and meditation on death and just the end of things. It's a little intense. I like all the instrumental breaks that these songs get, the longer Odyssey style ones. Absolutely. This is a hugely instrumental album. Uh, I mean, for starters, Keith Emerson as a pianist and a keyboardist is just on fire throughout. Not to mention, though, the bass on some of these songs really blew me away. And the drums are nonstop. As a three-piece band, they're really firing on all cylinders, I think. Yeah. This song has a disorienting time signature, too. Yes, I noticed that. It's almost like in a in a 5-4 or a, uh-huh. something weird you have to count out very specifically. I couldn't tell if it was something like that or if like it didn't have a 4 in the bottom of its time signature. I was struggling to tell if it was like in like a 5-3 or a... I was... It was difficult to track what the time signature was. It felt like it was almost shifting from time to time. Yeah, it does. And I think it's an interesting effect where the first time you listen to it, that catches you so off guard. You spend so much time trying to get your feet underneath you. But then the more you listen to it and the more you start to understand this chanting that they're doing, you, the more you get into the groove of it, the more it all kind of congeals and fits together. Plus, I mean, these lyrics are really kind of intense for as, as high energy as the song sounds, right? What gray crossed the landscape of your mind? Azrael looking down on you like the angel of death is coming is pretty dark and the first verse really establishes that creepy kind of ideal you know and the chorus of course just Azraela, they just chant which again creepy in context and then in yeah. the second verse the speaker warns that Azrael on wings of death collects his pound of flesh and and also brings only death this is still mixtober you know there's a reason this episode was for last week yeah that's true anyway i, I think that time signature business blended with the really really stellar and also really frantic sounding instruments and that chanting chorus really kind of give this song a haunting kind of terrified feeling of being in the throes of that angel of death and this is a really intriguing six minute start to the album yeah what do you think of uh hang on to a dream yeah track two hang on to a dream really slows us down first of all but also pivots us in a different direction it's a little more I don't know, immediately impactful. While Azrael Revisited kind of meditates on the future and on things dying, Hang On To A Dream kind of places us in the middle of the death of this dream. Lee Jackson is the vocalist on this one, and it's a song about heartbreak. It's a particularly like beautiful track from this record, I think. Yeah, I really like it. It's very pretty. Mm-hmm. It is. It's the second shortest track on this album, and even still, it clocks in at a pretty significant 4 minutes and 47 seconds. However, despite its length, this still does feel much more like a standard song than the prog epic. It feels like we've taken a step back from that into a more traditional song structure. Yeah. But uh, the premise, you know, things are going south. Our love was a dream, and, well, you know, 
now that our love is ending, it's a little bit like waking up. And the speaker's kind of left wondering and asking how to hang on to a dream in that fleeting moment before things get a little too real and everything that you were dreaming about fades from memory. It's wild and, and very intense. The structure of the lyrics is built around asking all these questions. You know, how can I do this? What can I do? Why does this happen? And I think it's a really cool concept because it doesn't oblige the song to provide answers, right? It's not a song of resolution or of realization. It's kind of a song of uncertainty. And I like that they just choose to let it stay that way. Yeah, I agree. I re- again, the instrumental bit about two minutes into the song where the pianos just really kind of go, it gives me a very classical vibe. Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of those songs where it feels pretty evident that they rearranged a lot of classical music or at least they dabble in that hemisphere i don't know it's it it asks so many questions that it almost makes me ask questions too like how do you hang on to a dream and in a very like practical sense is a dream like that that's already fading even worth necessarily trying to hang on to like I, i mean i get that in the moment it feels like everything's crumbling but if there's no way of saving it you know if if she's already cut the ties is that really what you want to go back into and i don't know The next song sounds like it's going to be another sad song, but really it's not. Um, Diary of an Empty Day is the next track, and it's pretty close to the happiest point on this album. A very happy-go-lucky moment. It does, and this is our last shorter, more traditional song-length one on the album. Yeah, that's true. This one is is under four minutes, which is kind of a feat with as many instrumentals as they cram into it. Actually, this song prominently features one of Emerson's more distinct instruments. He plays a Hammond L100 organ, and that's kind of what gives it this rich, full sound. It's such a nice, like, jaunty little tune, you know? It kind of, once again, ends up being a showcase for the keyboards but i think the vocal work is pretty similarly impressive just in terms of range he really gets up there on some yeah, of those chorus parts i like it now on an empty day what do you write in your diary nothing because the day was empty nothing right that's reiterated a couple times throughout the song the speaker's head is empty and his journal therefore is blank just like his thoughts and honestly It's kind of cool. It's a cool angle because that kind of emptiness is the reason the song exists. Like looking at some of these lyrics, I want to write the words to this music, but my head is all set to refuse it. No reason or rhyme to abuse it. Like I can't think of what to write about. So I'm going to write about not being able to think of what to write about. It's very cyclical in nature to think like that, but it's kind of fun. And it makes for a really kind of peppy song here. Uh, again, I like the kind of techno-y pianos on this one with the pa pa da pa da pa 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 Absolutely. Yeah, it's a super involved keyboard part. The more I listen to this album, the more Emerson's keyboards just floor me every time. You can always, it's one of those albums where if you're willing to dig deeper into it and listen to it closer, you'll find something else that you didn't hear before, especially regarding the instrumentals. Yeah. For example, for example. I see what you did there. It took you a second. (laughs) For example, is the fourth track on this album. And it's a very cool one, actually. We get a horn section on this song. It's kind of a, a breath of fresh air, a new flavor, a really rare inclusion for the nice actually one of their only horn inclusive pieces yeah and i love it i love it love me a good horn section i know and it's just subtle enough like horns brass sections in particular just have a big tendency to pop and stand out in all the wrong places and it's really great that they're able to balance this one in a way that it doesn't but you can still 
like it's still there, still very prominent. It's just not overwhelming. For me, for example, kind of falls right in the middle of the prog structure and the radio single structure. It has just enough punch and rhythmical shuffling to kind of keep its feet firmly in the prog camp, but also it's got the melodic structure that kind of pushes it right into the other camp too, at least halfway. This kind of straddles that line. This one went a little too long for me. Yeah, (laughs) for example, is an eight minute, 52 second song. And it is wordy. It's a it's a wordy song, but there aren't a lot of different lyrics. It's pretty heavy on the repetitive stuff. And, you know, it also, much like other prog songs we've talked about, it leans heavily on natural imagery, comparing all these sensations like hearing and smelling to bees buzzing and breeze blowing. Like, we kind of put the object of our sensation in place of sensing the thing. That substitution is really interesting and kind of clever. Yeah. It's another song, just like Hang On To A Dream, where we take on a lot of questions in quick succession. Did you do this? Did you do that? For example, like bees. What always gets me jazzed about this song, right from the get-go, is that intro the way that they kind of play a phrase and then go bump bump you know there's always that stop cut yeah yeah and i really like that i can get into that good rhythm very good rhythm that kind of concludes the first side of the album that's i mean roughly from a time standpoint that's about the halfway point <laughs> you flip the record over and then we get into these two live tracks that were recorded in 1969 at the Fillmore East in New York City we've mentioned the Fillmore before not the New York City one but the Fillmore that was in San Francisco we talked about Janis Joplin and some of the hippie bands that would play at the other Fillmore I don't know if they're related or not but probably they are right anyway up first is Rondo 69 it's called rondo 69 because they have to distinguish it from the first rondo it got a studio release prior to this album coming out and so this live performance gets tagged with the year they're naming their rondos like microsoft names their xboxes (laughs) rondo 360 rondo series (laughs) x (laughs) what did you think this is the album's only instrumental track but I mean, what a thrill ride. Yeah. A bit of a chaotic thrill ride. I'm a fan. I kind of figured you would be. They do a good job of keeping the intensity high the entire yeah. time without it ever like getting boring with it being so long. No doubt. And that's one thing I've actually heard the live version excel at over the studio version is that it's way more, it's got that spark to it, you know, that the studio version is just kind of missing sometimes. It's kind of interesting too. This is one where the drums are on all the time for these this whole eight minute track is just constant drumming it's impressive and the keyboards are doing their thing it's a little chaotic and honestly at times a little clashy but with style it's not recklessly clashy clashy with style yeah i'm a fan i like rondo and honestly if you're new to prog rock and you like instrumental tracks and keyboards rondo is a great place to get your feet wet jump in head first and try it out you know And the album closes up with track six, She Belongs to Me, also live from the Fillmore East. This one is very loosely a Bob Dylan cover. You know, it's his lyrics and for the most part his music, but it's very niceified and very instrumentally focused. You know, Bob Dylan's a lyrics guy and he, I guess, has his instrumental moments. We talked, we did a whole episode on Bob Dylan, 61 if you're looking. As a Dylan song, it should be no surprise that this song is very lyrically focused. Uh, Probably, honestly, the strongest lyrics on this album, in a certain sense. The song is mostly written as an ode to this girl, quote, 
who can take the dark out of nighttime and paint the daytime black. So it's a really nice like tribute. This this guy really gets along with this girl, is really falling for her, really feeling it. And then things kind of start to take a little bit of a weird turn. You know, the, the dude starts peeking through her keyhole. She becomes a hypnotist collector and he turns into a walking antique. I, mean, I presume in a figurative sense. Maybe he gets taxidermied. Maybe he's that alligator. Maybe this song is about an alligator. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I think what it boils down to, this song kind of progresses from adoration into like worship. We get from a point where you're like, isn't she cool? Isn't she sweet? To like, oh, the law can't touch her. Then to you are hypnotized and entranced by her. And the final verse is like, bow down to her and salute her when her birthday comes. Pretty wild. It gets intense. For this song, I really like its variation between its quiet moments and then these really spontaneous just explosions of noise and energy that kind of pop out all at once, very unexpectedly. Yeah, this one just didn't do it for me, I don't think. Well, that's kind of understandable. You're never one for long songs, and this one is the album's longest track at 12 minutes and 14 seconds. Yeah, and you know, we just came off of a long instrumental, so then the big instrumental break of this one, I was just kind of like, all right, I'm tired of it. Wow, you being tired? of instrumentals that's a rare day this kind of instrumental i'm not i've never been a big prog rock guy either that's true i mean we saw that loud and clear on yes and other places i don't know why but that sounded like it was like one of those like adventure books you can pick up when you're overseas and like a travelocity yes and other places (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay are you becoming is is listening to more prog rock making you more of a prog rock fan or less of one i think it's just cementing my views on it okay not really going anywhere it's just locking me in you're becoming staunch resolute that was another panel at con con interesting (laughs) Well, I hope you're not too planted to not spin, because with only six tracks, we've already kind of hit the end of the road. It is time to go to final spin for the nice. Let's spin it. Oh, that's right. I was was supposed to say that back when we started the first track, but I thought I'd throw it in here. Well, you did mention putting it here instead of the first track. I just thought you were workshopping this. I don't know. Yeah. What would we think about that spot instead? Good question. It's probably better at the beginning. I think so, too. From a logical standpoint. It's like we're spinning the album. Mm-hmm. That does make more sense. Yeah. My scores for this album, this is an interesting one to score, because being so early on in the genre of prog rock, it's missing a lot of the things that I really like about prog rock, like other, you know, the yeses and the rushes and the other proggy bands out there. They have elements that just aren't aren't around yet, and so that makes this album really unique. Musically, some of these songs are haunting. Hang On To A Dream, such a good ballad, such a good song structure. Azrael Revisited is clever, it's chaotic, it's hectic. Diary of an Empty Day is peppy and jaunty. We really kind of run the gamut on this album a little bit on a small scale. The music is fun and it's really well put together. Give the music a 74. Lyrics, a little less so. A lot of these songs do tend to get kind of repetitive. Don't get me wrong, there are some bright spots, right? I mean, these Dylan-penned, she-belongs-to-me lyrics, obviously. But a lot of the album is instrumental, and a lot of the band's focus was instrumental. And so I think lyrics kind of take a back seat, and that shows. You know, the chorus of Azrael Revisited is just them chanting Azraela. That said, though, I mean, it does get some, some dark moments. I have no complaints about the lyrics on Hang On To a Dream, actually. But for example, for example, is a little 
off the wall sometimes in its metaphors and comparisons. Given lyrics is 69. As for instruments and production, the instruments are there. I mean, the instruments are pretty darn good. And if I were just scoring the instruments, they'd probably end up in the high 80s. But the production side of things is a little rockier. This album is old and half of it is live. So take that into account. And I mean, recalibrate your own scores accordingly. I think the instruments and production score, the instruments are a little bogged down by the dated production and they ended about a 75. And for the overall vibe of this album, this album feels cool. This album is a cool album to know, I think. I like knowing it because I like music history. I like hearing the ways that this helped shape and influence future prog rock artists. But I do think it's just the first step on the journey. And as such, I think as far as prog rock goes, it has a long way to go. It's not a super popular album. And mostly, I think the reason the Nice is notable as a band or they're so well known is because of the things that, you know, Keith Emerson and Lee Jackson and these others, what they went on to do after the nice ended. People kind of went back and revisited their roots and went, oh, you know, we can see them starting out here. So that said, it kind of feels like this album was dragged into the popular zeitgeist by the accomplishments of the band later. And uh, for that reason, I'm kind of given the vibe of 51. It's a bit long. It's a bit slow in places, but it is a really cool history piece. This is like, you know, this is like the missing link of albums between straight up psychedelic acid rock and modern prog. And it's very cool. I'm pretty glad that we've stumbled across it. I'm glad that it's part of the spin cycle. And overall, as the authors of this album, it does get a bonus point, And that puts their total score at a 69.0. 69.0. Yeah. That lands the album at 558 on the ranking spreadsheet. Nice. Yeah, I like this album. I think it was a very enjoyable learning process for me. Good little kind of case study. Yeah, absolutely. Really cool case study. And I think I appreciate both the nice and prog rock in general all the more for doing it. Myself, I'm not that big of a prog rock guy, but I still enjoyed the album, I think. My, how many top threes do I get? <laughs> Good question. It is not the full amount still, I think. I think I'm, this is You're, my last week This is your week last of, week. This is my last week of only getting three. No, no, no. Wait. Oh, because the mixtaper didn't take any. Darn it. You, you got away with it. Yeah. I'll allow it. Really? The mixtaper didn't take any. The, the mixtaper forgot to make a top three. And so he couldn't take yeah. the fall on one of them for you. But I, I guess I'll let it slide. I mean, but if he didn't take any, I feel like he's, uh, I'm, I'm owed a couple now. I feel like now I'm in the negative. No. <laughs> I'll ease up on you. Fine. I'll let you have that one back. Because you were so kind to Tina Turner, you can pick all your usuals this week. Ooh. Plus, this is just a six track album. Exactly. So now I get two thirds of it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it feels pretty inconsequential. Just to let you take the fourth and so my four in album order hang on to a dream unsurprised diary of an empty day yep for example yep and rondo 69 nice so you took all the middle of this album and you left off the start yep. and the yep. end honestly same yeah and as for a score this one's getting a six from me solid okay with a unit of six panels at ConCon out of ten. Six pa- six ConCon panels. Awesome. Can you name what six panels did you go to? We already know you went to the Staying Resolute panel, and you went to the Be Funnier panel. What were the witty. other four? It was Witty. Thank witty. you very much. Sorry, Witty. <laughs> See, thank you very much. That was Witty. You're learning. Uh, I can't tell you that. I've already given out too much info. Okay, it's confidential. 
<laughs> exactly. I was going to make that joke, you know, because I'm wittier, but you just had to steal it from me. I did. So where do you put this in your sixes? Yeah, um, I actually think it's going to slot in... It's going to slot a little lower than apoptosis. I think it should. It's going to yeah. go right above. Ooh, actually, it's going to go in right below the Beach Boys. Mm, my new bottom of the sixes. Yep, yep. Mm. I think that's fair. I think that's understandable. And honestly, I mean, we already drew comparison between them and the Beach Boys with their unique piano playing styles and instrumental uh, sensibilities. Well, cool. That gives it a six and a 69. How about that? Playlist picks? How about that? Playlist pick, yes. Oh, what are you feeling? I'm feeling like Hang On To A Dream has to be in there. I agree. I agree. What are we feeling for another one? I almost hate to put Rondo 69 on there. Rondo is almost eight minutes long. Yeah, I know. It's really long. But it's really good. I don't know. I think I think Diary of an Empty Day is a pretty good second playlist pick. I agree because it kind of gets both vibes of the album. Yeah, the sad, mopey, like darkness of Hang On To A Dream kind of captured in Azrael Revisited. Uh, and Diary of an Empty Day kind of covers, for example, She Belongs To Me kind of falls somewhere in between both of them. So I think that's a good pair. Hang On To A Dream, Diary Of An Empty Day. Welcome to the Spin It Favorite Songs playlist. Enjoy your stay. That's right. That's going to wrap it up for this week. Stay tuned next week for a very exciting episode. Remember, we're on a keyboard hot streak. We got some more piano playing coming up, and I'm excited about it. It'll be a good old B-side. It will. If you're looking for more info, if you want more info about this episode, other episodes, everything Spin It related, you can check us out on social media. All the social media platforms, at Spin It Pod on Twitter, at Spin It Pod Official on Instagram, www.spinitpod.com on the web, where you can also buy some cool mixtaper, legally distinct coffee chain merchandise, and more. Yes. This has been a very good episode. It's been a lot of fun. But... Like everything that's fun, it must tragically come to an end. Tragically? Well, let's not make it tragically come to an end. Well, Hang on to well, a dream. Tra- it's tragic. Hang on it's to tra- the dream. I should say it's tragic that it has to end. Okay. Tragically, comma, it has to come to an end. Okay, that is more like it. But you know what? It doesn't have to come to an end. You're spinning. You should keep, keep spinning. Keep spinning. We'll see you next week. Can you believe next week is episode 70? I know. It's like... Last week was 68. That's pretty unbelievable. I need to go finish unpacking from Comic Con. You need to finish unpacking. Did you buy any souvenirs? Oh, of course. From the, well, I was going to say concessions, but that's the concessions. (laughs) 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 That's where all the food came from. (laughs) (laughs) 